what a beautiful day it is to worship together on this July 4th Sunday. It's been a while since we've had July 4th on an actual Sunday. Today is the day. My name is Becky Pritchard. I'm so grateful to be here with you all today. Thank you for joining us, those online, those here in person. And as we dig into our scripture today, we're going to continue with the book of Mark. We've been studying Mark for several weeks, and we're going to turn in just a minute to Mark 4. But as we think about Independence Day, we think about freedom, we sang about freedom. Our, as people of America, we are free people. We live in a free country. That's the thing that we always tell people. It's a free country, you know, right? We are free to do a lot of things that people living in other countries are not free to do. One in particular is this right here, gathering together to worship freely without being penalized, without being persecuted. And that is a joyful opportunity for us today. We are a free people, yet we are still so afraid. We're trapped, captive. We sang about captivity, chains, being prisoned by sin, in, in captiva- captivated by responsibilities or burdens, financial burdens, expectations, fear, whatever it is that continues to hold us captive. But we're free, don't forget, as Americans, we're free, but yet we live sometimes as if we are still held captive. So today, as we look at our passage, we're gonna talk about freedom from fear, freedom from captivity, freedom in Christ. We know that in Christ, we are free. But what does that mean, and how is that illustrated for us in Scripture? Today, we're going to look at it. Our passage in Mark, I hope you'll turn to it with me, is from chapter 4 of Mark. And over the next five weeks, we're going to be talking about Jesus' kingdom authority, the way that Mark illustrates Jesus' divine authority here on earth as he walked as a human. Today, particularly, we're going to be looking over at Jesus' authority over the natural world. One of the most extraordinary, unpredictable, crazy things that happen to us in our world is weather, nature. Last week, I was on vacation all week, expecting to sit by the pool every single day. And what did it do all week long? Rained, which we needed the rain. Praise God for the rain. But not anything that I would have anticipated or predicted or hoped for, although I'm grateful for it. Weather is one of the most uncontrollable things of nature. Weathermen have the best job in the world. Is it going to rain? I don't know. Probably 20%. If it rains, great. If it doesn't, eh, it's the weather. Can't control it. We should have all been meteorologists, right? (laughs) University of Oklahoma has like the best meteorologist school. That's where I went, Boomer Sooner. And you can go and get a degree in meteorology, spend a whole lot of money, and all you have to do is be kind of right some of the time. It's the perfect thing to do. So weather. So we're going to be talking about weather today and the force of nature that is so powerful and so overwhelming that we have to stop and pause for a second to to realize what Jesus is doing in this passage. So open your Bibles, Mark chapter 4, verses 31 through 45. Mark chapter 4, 31 through 45. You're welcome to follow along in your own Bibles. Read on the screens as I read the passage aloud. Hear the word of the Lord. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. 
and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now please join me for the call and response printed on the screens. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that guides us, leads us, open our hearts and minds to who you are. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so let us start right at the beginning of the passage. Let's take a look at verse 35. It begins with, on that day. What day? If we're not reading in succession, we wonder, what day are we talking about? It's the day that Jesus has been teaching to the crowds. He's been teaching over the last several weeks. We've been talking about parables and all the different ways that Jesus is teaching the crowds of people. On that very same day, this part of the chapter picks up after Jesus has been teaching all day. Jesus takes the initiative, tells his disciples, we're going to go across to the other side, leaving the crowd. Jesus was probably pretty tired. Although he is fully divine, we also know that he is fully human. Humans get tired. Teaching all day, he was ready to go. It was evening time. So they went in the boat to the other side. And they were able to get away from the crowds of people. There are a few details that Mark includes in this short passage that are very small, easy to overlook, but very curious and sometimes make us go, huh, I wonder why he included that. One of these details that could easily pass right by is when Mark writes that Jesus went in the boat to the other side just as he was. Okay, let's go, just as I am. I don't need to go pack my bag. I don't need to go get, um, shake hands one more time. I don't need to say anything else. I'm done with my teaching. He went just as he was. Does that mean anything? Does that say anything to us? It's a three words, just as he, four words as he was. It reminds us of Jesus's humanity, right? Okay, let's go. He takes the initiative. He says, let's go to the other side and they go. I wish that it was easy to pack up and go to the other side like, you know, oh, don't forget the water bottles and the suitcases and all the different things, the ice chest. We can't forget all of it. Another small detail that Mark makes sure to mention um, that there were other boats with him. It wasn't just the, this, what's about to happen didn't just happen to Jesus and his, his disciples in the one boat, but there are other boats there. This is in significant detail because we know that many people experience what's about to happen. And it was witnessed by many. This was sort of an evangelical moment in the midst of the fact that there are other boats there. Even though they left the crowds, there's still other boats experiencing what's about to happen. So that's important to know as we get into the story. We aren't sure how many or who was in them, but we do know that there were more present for this moment. 
So verse 37 begins the drama of the passage. Mark writes, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Okay, you can imagine this, right? Pretty scary, pretty real. How many movies have you watched in your lifetime that has dealt with a ship on the water and a storm? Let me name a few. The Perfect Storm, The Finest Hours, All is Lost, White Squall, Castaway, Open Water, The Poseidon Adventure, even The Little Mermaid. I could keep going. This is something that we love in Hollywood. Let us watch a ship being tossed to and fro and all the wind and the waves and we get scared and are they going to make it? There's disaster and then, you know, the hero saves the day and woohoo, it's so great. We pay money to watch movies like this. There are hundreds of them. I only listed, what, 12, 10, 5? I don't know how many I listed. (laughs) You can count them later. Um, But seriously, we love stories like this. The windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat. The boat was already filling. Picture yourself there. We read these passages in the comfort of our own home, and we forget what it must have felt like to be there. Absolutely terrifying. The boat is filling with water. The point I'm proving here is that this story about a ship is something very familiar to us, and sometimes we read scripture as if it's unfamiliar. Don't forget that this story is in our very own Bible, and guess what? Jesus was in this boat. That's a blockbuster hit if I've ever seen one. For some reference, the Sea of Galilee, the body of water in which they are on, it's, it's below sea level. And I'm such a meteorologist that I know these things, that often storms pop up because of the different down currents. I'm very smart. I just did a little research. Um, This is not my own, you know, knowledge. It's other people's knowledge. But but these moving air currents of different uh, temperatures of air create these pop-up storms that happen really regularly. So this is not uncommon for on the Sea of Galilee, where it's located, for all of a sudden a storm to pop up. And like a big storm, lots of wind, lots of waves um, tossing around. So that's pretty usual for that to happen. But even still, it sounds like this one particularly is quite the goalie washer. Literal pouring water into the boat. And how does Mark describe Jesus in the moment? He's asleep. I mean, asleep, totally drenched, totally tossed, lurching back and forth and asleep. Can you even imagine sleeping through something like this? Maybe it's because he was on such a comfy cushion. Here's the next um, small detail that Mark includes, that Jesus was sleeping on a cushion. Why do you think Mark left that detail in there? Why is there a cushion? Is it to show us that Jesus was super comfy and that no wonder he slept through it because of the cushion? Is it to, or do all boats have a small cushion in the stern? Is that where people go to sleep typically when they're on a boat in the middle of a storm? Funny little detail there, but it shows us that Jesus, again, is human. Who who doesn't like to snuggle up with a little cushion in a boat, you know? It seems a little odd, but maybe Jesus really was just that tired after a day of teaching. Maybe he just needed the rest. 
Or maybe because he is fully God and fully man, him sleeping might have been the fact that he's full of faith instead of fear. So much so that he sleeps right through a torrential and heavy storm. Have you ever slept through something crazy? You wake up the next day, you go to school, and people are like, did you hear that? And you're like, no, I sure didn't. I mean, that is like one of the weirdest feelings, right? Yeah, I see a hand up. Thank you, Thomas. That you are such, in such a deep sleep, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, those fireworks tonight were so crazy. Didn't you hear them? And you're like, oh, I sure didn't. That is so weird. You feel kind of like you missed out a little bit, or like, oh, I must have been really tired. Sometimes that happens to us. I wish that my, ch- my children would sleep through things a lot more often. But, um, but that is such a weird feeling to sleep through something. But can you imagine sleeping on this boat? The perfect storm, waves, wind, so much swaying of the boat that you're probably going to be seasick. And Jesus was probably soaked to the bone, and yet he still slept. Cushion, probably cushion. But what did the disciples do? Exactly what we would expect them to do, right? They woke him up. They shook him awake frantically and asked Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? Look at the use of that word, perishing. To perish means to die. Not just, do you not care that we're in a storm? Or do you not care that there's water in the boat? Or do you not care that the wind won't stop? But do you not care that we are perishing? Imagine the conversation between the disciples. You go wake him up. No, I don't want to wake him up. You wake him up. Why isn't he already awake? Maybe it didn't go like that. But it was so concerning for the disciples, that they didn't think twice. They woke Jesus up. They needed help. They knew Jesus was powerful and that maybe he could do something to save them. Do you not care that we are perishing? Did they actually think they were going to die in this storm? If they're going to die, Jesus is going to die with them. Perishing is a pretty dramatic thing to claim. My four-year-old always says, I'm so hungry, I'm going to die. And I know for sure, because she had a huge Big Mac for lunch with fries two and a half hours ago, that she's just not going to die. But we do that for exaggeration, right? Like, I'm going to die. I'm so hot. I'm going to die. I need water. I'm going to die. Were the, were the disciples just being dramatic in this moment? Gonna, don't you care that we're going to die? Absolutely not. They were not being dramatic at all. Do you think that Jesus, Jesus woke up and was like, yeah, y'all are exaggerating. You're overreacting just a little bit. Take it down a notch. It's okay. The boat's fine. We're going to be okay. We have to remember that these disciples made their living as fishermen. They were out on the water every single day of their lives. They knew that these storms popped up. They knew how to guide a boat during wind and waves. So if this storm is rattling them, If this storm is freaking them out a little bit, that they might be perishing, then it was probably pretty horrible. They're literally at the end of themselves. They have tried every human measure that they know how to try, that they've been trained to do, that they have skills for, and now they're desperate and they're scared. And in the midst of that fear, they look to Jesus for help. In this story, it's so easy for us to relate to the disciples. Wouldn't you be freaking out a little bit? Some of you are like, I don't even go on a clear day on a boat, right? 
Boats are, are dangerous places. And even if you loved storms and you were an expert on the water, there's nothing scarier than being out on the sea with waves and wind crashing down. Do the disciples believe that Jesus has the authority and the power to do something about this storm? They've heard him teach. They've seen him perform miracles. But in their panic, do they think that this storm is really more powerful than Jesus? Do you not care that we're perishing? Do you not care? At least wake up and care. Help us. If Jesus does have power over the storm, then why isn't he doing anything about it? At least help bail the water out. Come on, man, get up. The disciples' cry to Jesus in this moment reminds us of other moments in Scripture when people cry out to God. Crying out is a very normal theme throughout Scripture. Our psalms of lament begin with the psalmist crying out to God. Psalm 13 is a classic example. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Do you not care that we are perishing? Crying out to God. Psalm 12 is another lament. I'm sorry, Psalm 13, the same lament in verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eye lest I sleep the sleep of death. I'm going to die. Please, please, Lord. I'm calling out to you for help. That is what the disciples remind me of. How about in our own lives? When we are at the end of our ropes, we've used every bit of human effort we can muster every measure we know, we've been trained for all of our own effort and control, and we come to the end. Do you not care that we are perishing? Wake up, Jesus, help me. When humans get in a bind, when we get stuck, God wants us to cry out to him. Lament is a spiritual practice. It's, it's the idea of leaning on God for help in the midst of a trial, not staying stuck in that trial, but acknowledging the power and authority of God. Knowing that we can renew our faith even in the midst of the storm because of God's promises. That's what the disciples are doing naturally in this moment, whether they know it or not. Look at Jesus, calm, asleep. Right when he wakes up, he rebukes the wind. He doesn't scream and run around going, what's going on, tell me, I missed it all, I was asleep. No, he immediately, he immediately commands the winds and the wave, waves to cease literally stop. Not like, oh, kind of the thunder's going to stop, and then the waves, and then the wind, and then the trickle of the water, but to stop. And nature responded to his request. Look how the winds die immediately. He says the words, peace, be still. Know that these are the exact same words used in Mark 1, verse 25, when he rebukes the unclean spirit. Jesus is using the same authority that he did to rebuke an unclean spirit as he does to show authority over 
the winds and the waves. Once he calms the storm, he turns to his disciples. Here comes the teaching moment. Oof. The danger is out of the way. The, everything is calm. Okay, take a breath. Jesus has an opportunity here. He takes care of their pressing need. He takes care of the wind and the storms. The storms obey him. He uses the authority he has as God's son to calm the storm. And then he turns to his friends. He asks them in verse 40, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? It's like he's saying, after all you've heard me teach, after all you've seen me do, after all that we've been through, you're really still afraid? Do you believe the power of the storm is greater than the power that I possess? Gosh, this is so us, right? We know that God is good. We know that God is faithful to his promises. We know that God loves us enough to send Jesus to die for us. And yet when we get hit with the storm, we immediately respond with fear, which is a natural and God-given response in the midst of danger. But the moment we realize that God is more powerful, we can go, oh, that's right. We don't have to live with fear as the king of our lives. We have a different kingdom authority, and that's in Jesus. We doubt. We, f we let fear take over. Our faith is fragile. Jesus says, why are you so afraid? They're like, well, duh. I mean, look around. Why are we so afraid? Are you kidding me? This is a very typical good situation to be afraid in. Why are you so afraid? Even though they've witnessed the miracles of Jesus, why do they still have no faith? Wouldn't it just be so nice to just tell our brains to not be scared, to not live in fear, to like flip that light switch off of fear and turn the light switch on of faith and just go, I'm not scared, I've got faith. I'm not ever going to be scared. I've got faith. If it were that easy, there wouldn't be hundreds of self-help books about overcoming fear, right? I mean, you can Google search conquering fear or overcoming fear, and there's hundreds of books, journals, different things to help speakers, TED Talks, all these things to help people overcome fear. Again, fear is a natural response that is given to us by God for protection, we are never going to get rid of fear, and we shouldn't get rid of fear. In a moment in a boat with winds and waves capsizing and scary, you know, scary things, fear protects us. So it's not an either-or, faith or fear. It's a both-and. In the midst of fear, I have faith. As followers of Christ, we are not promised an easy, perfect life. We are not promised... No more fear forever and ever. But as we live into the world that we're, that we're given, into, as we live as broken people who are saved and redeemed by Jesus, but still living in the world that we live in, we have fear and faith. How do we respond to the God of the universe, to the God of all authority, the power of Jesus? How do we respond 
When we begin to shift our focus from an earthly focus, a horizontal focus to the things and circumstances that are hitting us horizontally, and instead shift our focus vertically and look to eternity, when we look to a future with hope that God promises us, there we cling to faith in Christ. There, the immediate circumstances around us tend to soften or loosen or get blurry because what is more clear to us is the hope we have in Christ. We suddenly realize how minuscule those fears are right in front of us. How do the disciples respond? In verse 41, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They're in awe of this man. They have walked with and learned from and seen Jesus teach all day long. And yet for the first time, maybe all day, they go, whoa. Even the wind and the sea obey him. Power and authority of Christ. Earlier, we talked about those psalmists, those psalmists in their laments, crying out to God in angst. They don't end there. You don't end with the cry out. A typical, um, a typical format of a psalm of a lament is expressing your concern, crying out, presenting the problem, here's what's happening, and then responding to God's faithfulness by remembering what he has done and what he has promised to do. Even in the midst of the storm, we can cry out, do you not care that we are perishing? And then acknowledge, wow, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? For these disciples, even in the midst of the, of the fear of losing their lives, they're able to respond with awe and wonder at the power and authority of Jesus. So we know that we're going to continue to have fear in our lives. We are broken humans, full of sin, held captive by sin. But we don't have to stay there because we have someone who has come to free us. Freedom, Independence Day. That's our national freedom. But what is our eternal freedom? eternal freedom in a God who knows us, in a God who comforts us, in a God who loves us, even in the midst of the storm. In Vacation Bible School a few weeks ago, one of the overarching themes of the week was that God knows us, he hears us, and he comforts us. We teach these things to our young kids so that when they're scared, when they get in the midst of those storms all throughout their lives, they remember, God knows me, God hears me, God, God comforts me. God knows me, God hears me, God comforts me. We forget and we let the fear take over. We would rather cling to the circumstances horizontally than focus on the vertical truth of hope in God, in Christ Jesus, in the Holy Spirit. We let the fear take over. Just like these disciples and the psalmists that came before them and our, our um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of the early Christians, people that knew and followed Christ, we are good, we're in good company as broken people who doubt and who would rather choose fear over faith. 
But when we read scripture, when we're saturated in God's word, when we are in fellowship with one another, when we serve and give and, and pray, we are connected to that God of authority. And we are given hope over demons, sickness, nature. God has promised the redemption of the world with Christ's return. And in the meantime, we have hope for that future. We can put our trust in God. So what's our response? Are we going to continue in the same pattern? Having faith in, in hindsight, oh good, God took care of that in hindsight, but in the moment, just cling into that fear because it feels better, or we don't know how else to do it. Just because it's our pattern or what our brains do because of our brokenness, is that how we have to live? Or can we respond to Jesus with awe and recognize that in the midst of the storms of life that he has the power and authority to protect us? On this Independence Day, let us live as truly free people free from the bondage of sin, free in Christ because he died to set us free so that we might be free forever. Do you believe that Jesus has the power to set you free? Do you believe that God loves you enough to send his son to die for you, the death that you deserved, so that you don't have to? As we acknowledge the power and authority of Jesus to heal and protect us, we come to the Lord's table today with thanksgiving. I'm going to invite Callan to come on up. We remember what Christ has done for us on the cross, celebrating the ultimate sacrifice for us, so that the storm is not the end of the story. What if this passage ended with, and the winds and the waves were crashing in, and Jesus was asleep? The end. We have hope in a God who has authority over even the wind and the waves. The storm is not the end of the story. As we prepare to partake of this sacrament, we must first acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. He's not just a prophet or a man, that he is God's son. This passage today reminds us of Jesus' kingdom authority. And as part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit... He has the authority to calm storms, even in our own hearts and minds. We praise Jesus for the work he did on the cross. And we have hope for the promised work of Christ's return. So, whatever storms we might be going through, this is an opportunity not only to be nourished while we're here, be nourished at the table as a family of faith, as people who believe in Jesus Christ, believe what Christ has done, but also so that we might go out and share this good news with the world. Everybody knows what it's like to be in a storm, but that's not the end of the story. We know a God who is so loving and so gracious that he would send his only son to die for us. So as we come to this table, we take a minute to look at our own lives. We hold a mirror up to ourselves. We recognize those moments, as, as Alex prayed earlier, where we are in need of confession. We, we did that as a community earlier. We, we said a prayer of confession. But personally, before we come to the table, we acknowledge what is holding us back from God? What is separating us still? What sins are we holding on to?
what do I need to acknowledge with a brother or sister to clear up something that's going on in my life before I come and receive this grace? Confessing our sins. Grace and forgiveness is not earned or achieved. It is a gift. And for those who believe in Jesus Christ, who's been, who've been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are invited to this table. Those who trust and follow in Christ are invited to come and feast so that you might be nourished to share with others. We come to the table acknowledging Jesus as Lord. With humble hearts, we receive his grace. We receive his forgiveness, and we share at the joyful feast of the people of God. According to Luke, at the end of his gospel, when our risen Lord served as host with his disciples, he took the bread, he blessed it, and their eyes were opened when he broke it and he gave it to them. Jesus is our host for the table today. We come as those who seek to follow him, as those who seek to receive his grace as a family together. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the joyful privilege of knowing you through Jesus Christ. We acknowledge Jesus is Lord. Jesus, who walked this earth, who healed, who taught, who even the winds and the waves obeyed. We acknowledge that he is our Lord. Today, we give you thanks for the blessing of being able to worship freely in our nation. We give thanks that we are a free people, not just because we live in America, but because you have sent your son to die the death that we deserve, that we might be cleansed of our sins, free to live as followers of you. You lavish your grace upon us. You pour your love over us. Free us, Lord, from fear. Free us from captivity. Free us from the bondage to which we cling. And help us to remember that that is a free gift that you give us. We thank you for Jesus, for his life on earth, as he shared our joys and sorrows. He preached and taught and healed. He befriended outcasts, tax collectors, and sinners. And in obedience to you, he went to the cross to die in our place, that each one of us might be redeemed. We thank you, Lord, that he is not dead, for we know that he is risen and rules, as the, uh, rules the world as King of kings and Lord of lords. Remembering Jesus today, Lord, we break this bread. We share this cup, proclaiming his death for the sins of the world and his resurrection to all peoples until he comes again. We set aside these common elements of bread and juice as symbols of Jesus's body and blood. In doing this, we ask that you would nourish us and sustain us by your Holy Spirit so that we might be bonded to one another, joined to Jesus Christ the Lord, receiving new life and remaining as his faithful followers until we feast with him in his glorious, joy-filled kingdom. We pray all of these things the way that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.